And you've probably heard it said, behind every great man is an even greater woman. Usually that's reflected in how people refer to you. People still refer to me as Sarah's husband. That's how they know me. So uh, behind uh, our brother Wayne is his wife, Kathy, and she's going to share with us this morning. So let's invite her up. And um, I want to tell you a story about a tree. This beautiful tree was in my neighbor's yard. But it's what I could see looking out my dining room window and my kitchen window. It was probably 45 feet tall. It was called the Japanese snowbell tree. And it was evergreen, and it had beautiful green, glossy leaves. And then in the late spring, it would bloom with these most delightful white snowbell flowers and then when it was time for them to fall to the ground it looked like it had snowed for days it was the most gorgeous tree and then my neighbor she liked it okay I would just go on and on about how much I loved it and I love all trees I'm a I'm not a tree hugger but <laughs> I'm a tree handshaker and um, I just love them. I, I, whether they're evergreen or deciduous, I'm just so impressed with them. And, you know, there's the only place where um, water flows against gravity, right? From the roots up to the trunk and out to the branches. And it, they're shaped like a fountain. And each leaf is shaped like a fountain as well, representing the tree. And Jesus talks a lot about trees. And trees are mentioned very often from the scripture, right? From Genesis all the way to Revelation. And Jesus said in verse 43 of chapter 6 in Luke, A good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit, or flower, if you will. So here poses the question to ask oneself. What kind of tree am I? What am I known for? What grows from my branches? Are they laden down with pretty flowers and fruit that's sweet and ready for the picking? Or are they covered with bitter fruit, thorns and thistles that repel other people from wanting to draw near? And imagine my horror and my anger when my neighbor announced to me she was going to cut it down, my favorite tree. And um, she did because she wanted to make room for her boat, and which she never parked in the place where it left. And I was so angry at her that I didn't talk to her for months. And she wasn't a believer. So I was, I placed my anger and my right to have that tree in my life above sharing the Lord with my neighbor. Think about that. Because the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And Jesus goes on in verse 45 of Luke, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. 
and an evil man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Beth Moore said that our hearts are in, are in danger, and our hearts are dangerous things. And marriage and family life can be that area and time where our, sores, our souls are forged in trial and testing. And we have to be mindful and careful of our hearts. Because Jesus said, continuing on, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those are which defile the man, for out of the heart become evil thoughts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. That's in Matthew 15, 18. So we have to examine our hearts, but also examine our words, because Jesus is speaking about our words. And we have to come to the conclusion that it is not wisdom nor God's will to just speak everything that comes to our mind. <laughs> oh, I hit a nerve. <laughs> We're not entitled to that, according to Scripture. And I would say that the culture these days in the world and even in certain quarters of the church is that we are entitled to say whatever comes to our mind. And we're entitled to just let it fly, and let our hair down, especially at home, right? Because that's where we really behave badly a lot of times. So we have to make a decision that we can set apart our hearts to drink his cup, and sometimes that cup means suffering. We have to make a decision in our minds to accept from his hand what he's allowed in our lives and who he's allowed in our lives. And we can choose at that point to either cherish a really thankful heart filled with thanksgiving like Christ was, or we can indulge in a murmuring and complaining critical heart toward those that we're called to love, toward our loved ones and our family. But if we choose to be like Christ, we can allow his grace to bring the forgiveness and healing and peace. Remember, when you take communion, that he took the bread and he looked up to heaven to his heavenly father and he gave thanks never forget that this was the eve of the crucifixion he gave thanks for the bread which was his body broken such courage and such love jesus demonstrated that night so we must forsake our right to vent our negative opinions about everyone and everything. Because Proverbs 15.4 says, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. But a deceitful 
tongue crushes the spirit. We need to bring our words to the obedience of Christ. And you can do that in your mind. Can you not? Lord, take my thought process right now captive to your obedience, right? That's what Paul teaches us in Corinthians. We need to let the Lord control our hearts that manifests itself in our words. Wayne and I have a continual argument. We have many. And one of them is the dishwasher. There's a rule in my house that whoever cooks the meal doesn't have to do dishes. Yeah. I mean, if you're slaving away for hours preparing the food, I mean, sorry, but the person who ate the dinner gets to clean up. And so his job has always been, it's always been to uh, do the dishes. So he prides himself on doing the dishes. Um, but lately he's, He's kind of slacked. <laughs> because, you know, Seahawks, basketball, all of it, right? And um, I'll wake up in the morning, and there's a sink full of dishes. And so about a third of the time now, it's a third of the time now, Wayne. <laughs> I do my own dishes. Now, you'd think that he would come in and say, Wow, Kathy, I'm sorry I didn't do the dishes for you last night, but thank you for doing them. But no, he opens the dishwasher and he shows me how I've done it all wrong. That's true. He goes, you angle in the bowls wrong, the plates are wrong, it's too crowded, it's too this, too that. And, you know, you're just trying to push everything in, right? Because you don't want to do two loads. You just do an overcrowded one load. So I found a card um, last uh, Valentine's Day, and it had a dishwasher on the front, and inside it says, here's to another year of you putting up with the way I load the dishwasher. <laughs> it's annoying. His lectures about how to load the dishwasher get annoying. Because I, I feel like I do a pretty good job. Now, he is better, for sure. But I just don't want to hear the lecture, right? <laughs> and Peter, he writes about suffering and, you know, being annoyed. In First Peter 2, if you want to turn there. First of all, he goes on, he, he prefaces everything saying, you know, we're going to suffer God's will, but we should never be suffering from committing willful sins. We should be suffering from um, enduring God's will for us. So verse 18 through 21, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, you endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Verse 21 for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him 
who judges righteously. And in family life, there are many times when we suffer under God's will. We're suffering with, say, an autistic child. It's very difficult to raise any child these days, but one that has learning difficulties or behavior difficulties, it tests the parents to the nth degree. It's difficult working environment many times, and I know some of you are both working, and so you bring home the trials together <laughs> at home, and you're short, and you're short-tempered. You're reactionary. But Jesus, he set us this example that when we do good, we take it patiently, for this finds favor before God. When you suffer unjustly for being in God's will, and you do it patiently like Christ, you're finding favor with God because you're learning to be like Christ. And that's more precious than any gift that we can be given. I had a friend who became a Christian at a Billy Graham crusade in her late 20s. She was from Germany. She had survived the Nazi occupation her family fled for their lives and ended up in East Germany and then suffered under the Russian occupation. And then they escaped over the border for their lives. She was on the last boxcar out of Dresden the night of the Dresden bombing. So she grew up very fearful and very um, used to suffering. She got married. Then she became a Christian. Her husband didn't. He did not talk to her for two years. Not a word. That was suffering. That was suffering, but it was according to God's will. He allowed it for only he knows the purpose. Then her father-in-law got sick, and he moved in with them. He hated Germans. He hated all Germans, and he hated her. And he treated her and persecuted her with horrible contempt, just insulting her, telling her to go back to her country where the Nazis were. And she learned to endure suffering. And she loved him. She let God love him through her. And then at the very end of his life, she was able to lead him to Christ. Yeah. But her husband still doesn't know the Lord. He used to persecute her terribly, like I said before, and finally he drives her to church every week, drops her off, goes to Barnes & Noble, comes and picks her up in his little Tesla, and then they drive home. He won't step foot in our church, but she's praying, and we're just trusting that the Lord will bring him to himself. Sometimes... God allows you to suffer in family situations. Don't run away from it. Don't despise it. 
<laughs> there is a fruit of the Spirit called long-suffering. Long-suffering. Years-long suffering. But how can we be like Jesus and not fight back, not retaliate, not insult and revile? The secret is he committed himself to him, God, who judges righteously. He committed himself. Now, how can we suffer and entrust our souls and our spirits to him when we're suffering? Well, it says that he personally carried, verse 24, he personally carried our sins in his body up to the cross, which is a... Um, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4, when it says, Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried away our sorrows. So whatever grief and sorrow your suffering is causing you, Jesus bore it in his body. I mean, he not just, he bore your persecutor and your difficult people. He bore their sins but he also bore your sins. And so often our sin is um, reacting, isn't it, to other people's sins against us? Whether our grief in our life is caused by other sins toward us, most often it's caused by our sins toward others. And um, when we don't let the spirit to control our spirits, we reap a whirlwind of trouble. We know the grief and the tension that brings others. We know the misery it brings when we yell at our kids one too many times. We react in irritation to those that we should be loving. But not only are we grieved by our own behavior, but Paul says that there's another who is grieved. And in Ephesians 4.30, Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So here we see in this verse that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be saddened. He can be quenched. James Hastings says, it is sin then that grieves him, sin that pains him. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is always faithful to show us when we're grieving him. And we must listen to that conviction when we know we are. F.B. Meyer says, he is not merely an influence, he is a person. And may easily be grieved. The dove of God is very tender and gentle. And if there are thorns in the nest, he is pained. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is our, is our comforter. He's the spirit of truth and power. He's the paracletus, that, that one that comes alongside of us to help us like a home doctor comes to the sick patient in their home and sits beside the bedside until they're all better. So often, what grieves the Holy Spirit 
is our anger. Our anger that we're nursing and cultivating in our hearts. And then it comes out with our words. <laughs> always, it's amazing how that always happens. We have to train our hearts to sense when we grieve him and listen to what he's whispering in our souls because the Bible makes it clear that God's voice is a still small voice. And to settle down our anger when we feel like we want to scream, and we do often, but listening instead to that still small voice. Paul goes on in Ephesians 4.26, and he says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger that lingers far too long brings the Holy Spirit grief. And those who try to control other people with their anger are simply put, neither nice nor respectful. Controlling people are selfish at the core and immature at heart. And Paul is saying, as the red sun is sinking in the west, let your anger sink with it. Otherwise, he says, there's someone crouching at the door. In suffering these hurts, like I said, you're tempted to be very angry. And we are can always justify our own righteous indignation. It's the nature of anger. We've molded over three million times in our mind to justify it, right? Cultivate it, to nurse it, like I said. You know, there's many different kinds of anger. There's that stoic, quiet anger. They call it passive aggression. And then there's the, you know, Mediterranean explosive, uh, expressive <laughs> kind of anger. But the exhortation that Paul is writing is actually a verse from the Psalms. Psalm 4.4. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Salah. So how... Do we be angry yet do not sin? How in the world can we do that? It, it just seems to take an incredible amount of faith. But then we look at the life of Jesus and we see that he got angry. He was angry. Read the woe chapter against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, look at him deal with the um, money hungry, grubbing booze in front of the temple. I mean, we see him, and very often in the Old Testament too, we see that God is angry, except his is always righteous indignation against sin, whereas very often our anger is just our own personal hurt. We've suffered an insult or didn't get that promotion that we wanted or were slandered by someone. Yes, Jesus got angry, but he's angry at sin. And we should be angry at sin. Abhor what is evil, Paul says. We should be angry at sin. 
but very often we're just angry at someone else. He loves us and he desires to calm our troubled souls. And that's why David said, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. So when you're angry, David is saying, get alone, lay on your bed and meditate on God. And then, verse 5, it says, Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. That's how you deal with your anger. You vow to God that you will not react in an unrighteous way because the unrighteousness of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We know that. We should know that. But when we vow not to react in an unrighteous way, but we put our trust in the Lord, we're saying, Lord, you deal with the situation. You deal with the people that are causing us such unrest and stress. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to control us, to fill us and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. I remember observing a young couple many years ago, maybe five, seven years ago, and she was a doctor and he was a fireman, very successful, beautiful Ken and Barbie doll couple. And, um, and yet when I, whenever I was going over to their house to visit, um, they were just carping at each other. You know, when I was alone with him, he would just complain about his wife. When I was alone with the wife, she just complained about her husband. And it was all over chores, house chores. He didn't do enough. I work too much. She doesn't do enough. She's lazy, blah, 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 blah. You know, we've had that. All of us have suffered that, right? It's just part of life. And I... I was starting to get really worried, oh my gosh, yes, about whether their marriage was going to withstand this trial that they were indulging themselves in. And uh, I certainly understood it, but it was still hard to listen to. Then she got pregnant. It's her third pregnancy. And it was clear from the outset that the baby was too small. Then it was clear that the baby was suffering from a genetic disorder, trisomy. Then it was clear that the baby would never survive. She went full term, and I was there at the birth, and (laughs) this little baby, they named her Grace, um, she was full term, but the size of a five-month-old fetus. And she was alive for about an hour, maybe hour and a half. And she just had the sweetest little cry, like a little baby sheep, baby lamb. And the parents were holding the baby. They let their older kids hold the baby. Then they watched their baby die. And then they buried it and had a memorial for baby Grace. And they changed overnight. They changed. They never complained about each other anymore. You know, 
That was it. But it took the death of their child to die to themselves. But they did. They suffered through excruciating pain. You know that pain where every doctor is telling you, abort this child? And she refused. And she kept persevering no matter what. And they both loved this baby and then came through loving each other. It's a beautiful example of why the Lord allows suffering so that we can reflect the light of our Heavenly Father's face and the atmosphere of our homes would be like springtime, you know, when all the flowers are in bloom. They're sending forth their sweet fragrance in the air. Paul has a lot to say about anger and our sins of the flesh. But he also has a lot to say to parents, to young families who are bringing up kids. In Ephesians 6, 4, I'll just read, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Nourish them. Again, in Colossians 3.25, he says, Fathers, don't embitter your children. Why? Lest they become discouraged, the scriptures say. That word for discouraged is that their spirits are broken. They want to give up. Their spirits are disheartened. Now, when Paul is saying fathers, I believe he's talking about parents. I mean, he addresses the fathers because they're the head of the home, right? But mothers can discourage their children too. Mothers and dads can be so angry and reactionary and harsh that our kids feel like giving up. And there's so many reasons why we react to them. But I remember one afternoon, this is when my kids were probably 8, 10, 14 and 16, and I was, you know, just biting their heads off about something, cleaning up their rooms, maybe. I'm not sure, but I was really unpleasant. It was a reasonable request, but unreasonably made. And, um, and the Lord just spoke to me and says, you're not angry at your kids. You're angry about that phone conversation you had earlier today. And that was the first time I realized that Wow, we can actually take out our anger on someone who doesn't deserve it, number one, and it's not the problem. Displaced anger, right? We've heard that phrase. And so at that moment, I realized that when I'm angry at something else or someone else, I have to really deal with it before the Lord so that I don't take it out on those that are innocent. And very often, my husband was very innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. And he'd always ask me, he goes, why, why are you always so mad at me? You're not mad at your friends. I said, well, I'm not married to my friends, but if I was, I'd be angry at them too. <laughs> you know, in marriage, you just get angry at each other for not doing this or doing this, whatever, you know. 
There is a way to deal with our anger, and spouting off is not one of them. Now, I live in Shoreline, Washington, and believe it or not, we have bald eagles. They're not extinct there. And um, I love them. I love to watch the eagles fly over their, from their nest to their fishing area and then back, and they fly over my house. And, you know, you can instantly spot them because their wingspans, five, six feet wide, they're amazing. But you can always tell when an eagle is approaching. Why? Because you hear noise. What's the noise from? It's from the murder of crows that are chasing them. Have you experienced that? Yes. They just caw, caw, caw. They're just the most annoying, disgusting creatures known to mankind. So here is these disgusting crows cawing at the eagle to try to chase him out of their territory. And what does he do? He just peacefully flies overhead, smoothly, unflinched, unaffected, doesn't cry out. You know how he could just turn and snap their heads off with that beak. He doesn't. He just keeps flying swiftly through the air. Now, one afternoon, I heard all this kind, and oh my gosh, my worst sight. Crow family was building a nest next to my driveway. And it was my neighbor's fir tree, and so I couldn't do anything about that. And I watched them build this huge nest, and I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to reproduce in my sight. That's <laughs> disgusting. Now, why do I hate crows so much? Well, because I love songbirds, and eagle... I mean, um, crows are the enemies of songbirds, right? You know, when they're little babies in the nest, they chase them down and try to eat them. Or when they're learning to fly, they'll start, you know, hovering around so that they can have them for lunch. So I was so annoyed with these eagles building their nests, I looked up whether it was okay to shoot them. <laughs> and it's a felony. What? Yes in shoreline to shoot a crow and I don't even have a gun but I was ready to get one a BB gun or whatever you know and um I thought oh I can't I can't go to jail over a crow <laughs> you know that there's so many weird people you know that would turn me in and um so imagine I said you know I honestly made it a matter of prayer. Lord, deal with these crows. <laughs> you won't believe it, but this is true. One afternoon, I look out, and here's all the cawing and cawing, cawing, and an eagle had landed in the crow's nest, grabbed a baby crow in his beak, and was flying off with him for lunch. <laughs> you don't even know how happy I was. I just kept saying over and over, I called all my kids, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. That's a Lord of the Rings line. Okay, just making sure. So I was so thankful, and I thanked the Lord, and I'm not making this up again, but two weeks later, I heard all the coin, went out, looked at the nest, and there was an eagle jumping up and down in their nest, destroying their nest so they never came back. Now, that was a miracle. 
And I just said, Lord, you're just so good to me, I can't even stand it. He took vengeance upon those that made me angry without a shot from me. When you trust the Lord to deal with your problems and your problem people, he's faithful to deal with them. But he does it in righteousness, not with vengeance. If we take matters into our own hands, we just multiply our hostilities. And that spreads. It spreads to people we don't want it to spread to. Or we can trust God. We don't have to take matters into our own hands and always be domineering and having the loudest voice and the last word at all times. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 3.8, and he says, Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. He who would love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That's Peter quoting Psalm 34. You see, in our families, as parents, as wives and husbands, this is where God wants to teach us to learn to love. We have to learn it first at home. And then he teaches us how to love the family of God outside our home. But the priority should be home first. Kids see through that hypocrisy if you don't let love reign at home first. We get so excited up in Seattle, and I'm sure you do here, when the first bulbs are starting to spring up out of the ground. And the first ones are always called the snowdrops, and then the miniature daffodils, and then the daffodils, and then the tulips. And they're so colorful and so beautiful. Just springtime. But truly, what we should really be impressed with is not the little plants that just sprout up, but it's trees. It's trees. The tall, soaring trees that have endured the windstorms, the drought, the snow, the ice, the sleet, all growing in their natural habitat, yes, because life is suffering, and your natural habitat will be suffering at times. But that's what makes the roots stronger. That's what makes the bark thicker. Imagine my joy when I was looking at my yard a couple of years, about a year and a half after my neighbor cut down that beautiful Japanese snowbell tree. And I had a baby one in my yard. So a squirrel had gotten one of the seeds and buried it in my yard, and it was three feet tall. And now it's about 15, 20 feet tall. It's a beautiful tree. It's the exact same one as my neighbor's. 
Well, you know, that windstorm that went through, it was a blizzard about three years ago. It knocked down my mimosa tree, which fell on my Japanese snowbell tree, and knocked off a couple of branches, and now it grows like this, but it's still alive. <laughs> it's still growing. I'm trying to prune it to where it looks okay, but it was nearly knocked out, but it survived. And very often, the trials that we suffer through can nearly knock us out. We feel sucker punched. We feel, I guess, the death blow. But there's life still in you. There's perseverance. There's the Holy Spirit strengthening you to keep persevering and keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. And even though you're a little crooked, you're still beautiful. And you become a haven for songbirds. I can't even count all the species of birds that land on its branches now. So, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, we began with. So really, in order to guarantee that our mouth will speak blessing and courage and encouragement and patience and love, we have to make sure where our heart's at. You know, we have to so let the Lord fill our hearts with that praise and thanksgiving and understanding and compassion so that when our mouth does speak, we're speaking out of the good treasure of our hearts and thus giving life and giving hope to those that are entrusted to us, especially the innocent ones among us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for <laughs> your word. It's so cutting and so convicting, but yet never without hope, never without that promise that you are working your fruit of your spirit into our hearts and into our lives so that we can be firmly planted and we can bear that fruit that you desire to see in our lives, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Lord, we trust you to do that, and we trust you to convict us when we're justifying and giving our hearts way too much latitude, <laughs> way too much freedom to hurt others. And I pray, God, that you would convict us, change us, transform us, and cause us to grow 
into your likeness. In your name, amen. That was a rich teaching. I think you guys would agree. And, you know, I, I think we all of us here that have placed our faith in Jesus, we, we agree in that we, we want to be those trees that are produce good fruit, right? We, we want the, the righteousness the word talks about to be seen in us. And I was just thinking of how Jesus uses this example on a couple occasions of how, you know, before anything can grow, the seed has to go in the ground. It has to die. And, and he talks about how, like, you know, those who are willing to lose their life, in a sense, you know, give up what your feelings want, your desires, and, and in a sense, replace it with what Jesus wants for you, then that's where you're really going to find life. And that's where you're going to be able to be a, a tree that produces good fruit and stuff. And so, like Kathy pointed out, those hard things we go through, including in marriage— are the very things that God uses to help us because it is helping us die to ourselves so that we can become those that produce the fruit that bears life in our lives, in our wife's lives, in our kids' lives. And that's the way I want to see those things when they're happening and just trust God to, you know, run the course so he can make me into what he wants me to be. Amen. Amen.